There's been a snitch up. I said so 5,000 years ago. You mean 10,000 years. I'm Shelby. And that means I'm Colin. <laughs> and tonight we're going to be going back in time to 1975 and reviewing the story The Ark in Space. Aren't we actually going like forward in time? 10,000 yeah, years? Yes. <laughs> Over 10,000 years. Oh, right, because they started, said, yeah. In, first thing we said, uh, the snitch up was 5,000, oh, you mean 10,000 years ago, yes. I uh, guess for 10, us 11,000 then, yeah. Suspended animation. Yeah, it's you know, just like time it's all it's all a bit relative and wobbly wobbly. Yeah, so this is this is Harry's first uh, you know, into the future and, you know, off planet type of excursion, isn't it? It is. And I must say that the Sarah Jane Smith, Harry Sullivan and Fourth Doctor team is probably one of the best teams that they ever had. Yeah, Sarah Jane has never looked better. Oh, <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I do have to say, though, I felt like, you know, at least in the first three episodes of the story, Sarah Jane was very sidelined, which makes sense because, you know, it was more focused on Harry since he was new. Um, you mean the first, the first three episodes or the first episode? I thought the first three she was, you know, kind of there doing stuff, but, like, it was like she was more of things were happening to her like she yeah got, first episode was definitely a damsel yeah kind of a ro- uh, role she didn't seem well, to damsel, be like more just like she got stuck okay. right yeah I'm distress just, you know yeah. I, who, who else is in distress usually damsels that's pretty much what i how i label them but uh well it could have been anybody i guess well that i mean that, that's kind of the thing is that yeah it could have been but then in the fourth episode i thought that you know she broke out of that and and did some great things well, yes. I mean, obviously, uh, I, I guess in a sense you're right. They did have to concentrate more on Harry's part in that he was a new companion and he was kind of the focus. And it was kind of nice having just Harry and the Doctor kind of had a, have a lot of the interactions in that first episode. I right. liked that. And it was kind of, I mean, obviously Harry's the comedic influence on this because he's so old-fashioned and slow and he's the military Uh person too (laughs) yeah i love how you have a doctor with the doctor and then you have you know med tech woman coming into play too (laughs) vera yes vera was a she was a gorgeous lady and she was uh, i thought one of the uh, great side characters i mean all the way to the end i was just enamored by by her um so was noah actress herself but also just her character was just fun she, uh, I mean, I love the little ending she got when she's like, thank you. And then she looks up, see the, sees that they're gone, and then smiles really cutely. That was really awesome. 
<laughs> yeah, I thought she was like an I thought she was an android or, or something at the beginning, just with uh, the devoid emotion and everything else, the overly formal manner of speaking. Yeah, for sure. I guess that's how they. I guess that's how they picture us in the far future when we're actually out to, out of space for a lot less. Um, yeah. and, well, and, you know, if you think about it, if, if human society has truly evolved to be much more compartmentalized and specialized, and it's actually like you know been going on for a long time, yeah. then people might you know yeah, emotion is somebody else's department. Well, yeah, but I mean that really because you know she's a med tech; she has to cut off her emotion to be able to effectively do her job. Right. I thought that was one of the more interesting concepts that kind of got me going from a philosophical bend. You know, if, if we are doing that, it seems to be kind of the way of the workforce that we've seen over time. You know, more people specializing in particular things, you know, kind of less generalists in a lot of industries. And that's kind of how we've always done it. We've become increasingly more specialized as, you know, a species. Yeah, it's interesting to see how that might, you know, rob you of your humanity or change humanity. Um, and, you know, I, I thought that was a, a fun puzzle to think of. I wonder what happens to all the artists in the future and all the entertainers and all the people that do things that are more for entertainment. Well, who's to say that they weren't on the ship also? Because all we really saw were the people whose job it was to, like, maintain and wake everyone up and get everything running. Yeah, we certainly saw the fruits of their labor, and at least everybody in the Ark thought it was a good thing to preserve all of literature and... You know, feasibly, you know, that encompasses a lot of other entertainment oh, yeah. I, I, I as thought, well. I thought that was interesting, their uh, their storage space for all of the, you know, composite knowledge of, of mankind being in those, like, little drawers in the wall. <laughs> well, they also had the cryogenic repository where they basically uh, had yeah. both plants and, uh, and animals all kind of saved. Now, which ones, we won't know, but they obviously probably had seeds and eggs of those animals. Yeah, you know, I, I think it would have been more interesting, actually, if, like, instead of this alien force coming in and attacking, it had been, you know, one of the creatures they kept in their cryopods somehow got out and then evolved over 10,000 years and became a very different type of creature. Yeah. Well, 10,000 years seems to be a little bit too short of a time period for that kind of evolution, but I think I understand where you're coming from. It could have even been a human that didn't want the human race to evolve or to move on. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of advanced technology here. Maybe it's, you know, some sort of um It didn't have to be 10,000 years you know. either. They could, have, they could have made the timeline longer, you know. Yeah, there, there's a lot of options, but I, I actually like this Monster of the Week. I like the fact that it absorbs knowledge throughout generations, not just knowledge, but bodies, too. Um, and I really thought it was interesting just to conceive of beings that didn't really need much oxygen or protein or anything and could kind of recycle just, you know, CO2 to O2 continuously, um, you know, with different enzymes. I think that was a really neat idea that I hadn't given a lot of thought to. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, like, the number of wild advantages they have. I think the concept of this alien was amazingly well thought out. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, it had a lot of influence from Robert Holmes, who was the the author of this story, uh, one of the greatest Doctor Who authors of all time. He was a script editor at the time. He did take uh, John Lucarotti's script and kind of shape it and evolve it into this story. Um, I think one of the problems with the Wern, though, is that, unfortunately, the realization of them on screen was... Uh, let's, shall we say, um, 
a little bit underwhelming. <laughs> it was a sleeping bag wrapped in bubble wrap. <laughs> hey, hey, it's yes. some of the it's some of the scariest green bubble wrap I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I mean, the music and the atmosphere I think really worked for that scene. Plus, at the time, bubble wrap really wasn't a thing in packaging, so that was something new, and so they were just using that as as something that they could paint and and try and make it into look like skin, which it did. It it did its job. That was obvious. But um, if only he didn't have to uh, push or slam his hand down on the console and then you hear all the pops. From yeah, the- that was like, <laughs> oof. Or, you know, that probably could have even been forgiven, too, if it wasn't for the darn mass proliferation of public knowledge of bubble wrap. Yeah. If only they this could have hid it from us. It would have been it a much does, more... Well, it dates, the, it dates it a little bit. Well, you know, it is interesting because Bubble Wrap comes back and is the villain again in the 13th Doctor story. (laughs) This is true. The Wern, though, um, I think the, I mean, the costumes obviously were limited by the BBC budget. So, unfortunately, you had all six legs all kind of in one little place and none of them really could move very much. Yeah. Um, And so it would have been a little bit better if they could have had, like, the legs kind of spread out more and, and they could have crawled around with them but obviously that's not going to happen yeah they're, they're I, I, not just like too much like big awkward bugs which i mean you, you can do sure but um you know I, i'm sure that's a very efficient life form don't get me wrong but switch it up a little bit you know make it be a little bit more alien you know with all the other forms that it went through and so quickly you'd think it, it might look a little bit more, more uh differentiated from giant hornet well, yeah, I mean, like, how would a, a creature shape with wings shaped like that be able to fly through space? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess they could they could be shaped almost however you wanted them to be. <laughs> it, if they could only fly in one direction. <laughs> yeah. Wherever they launch off from. <laughs> hey, whatever works, I guess. But, you know, I, I just got to say, I felt like the biggest flaw with the story, and I did... By the way, I mean, I did enjoy the story. It had a lot of great elements, but I felt like it could have been half the length. And nothing would have been lost. There was a lot of running back and forth, doing things that, you know, ultimately didn't really move the plot forward. And, you know, I just think that, you know, it would have been an action-packed, you know, phenomenal story if it had been two episodes long. Funny you mentioned that, because there are actually two scenes that were cut out of the Ark in Space. You might have noticed there was one part where the Doctor and Vera are in the hallway talking to Noah when he's turning into the bug. And then all of a sudden, they're behind a door, and his gun falls down, and he's no longer there. Yeah, I was wondering about that. (laughs) That that was a very bad edit, because they actually cut out a sequence where Noah actually asks Vera, Vera to kill him. And the producer at the time, Philip Hinchcliffe, mm-hmm. uh, this is his first uh, produ- production of Doctor Who, um, decided that at the last minute it was too dark for Doctor Who to have someone asked to be killed. Oh, you know what? That makes a lot of sense because while I was watching that, like his whole speech sounded like it was leading up to that, that he was going to be like, kill me. And then I kind of felt like he was cut off by the you know, the insect inside or whatever. Yeah, it, it really changes the dynamic, though, because here you almost see it as, like, a more of a selfish thing. Like, you see his humanity, and him being like, get out, get out, but still, I'm going to stay here, I'm going to do my bug stuff. It's like, it's kind of a weird disconnect. Yeah. I, I think for the audience to reconcile with. But I think a nice thing that it does is that it keeps you guessing at the end a little bit more, because I think if you had a really forceful 
uh, scene with him kind of fighting back and, and kill me, kill me, you might uh, be a little bit more apt to more quickly say, okay, he still has his humanity. Um, you know, we can reason with him. But I, I didn't know that until like more the, the very end, you know, um, how it well, came out here. The actor was very upset that it was cut because he felt it was kind of integral to his whole entire part was that it was kind of a progression from human to insect and and part of that was him wanting to be destroyed um but i think uh the other scene that they actually cut out that is now debated as to whether it was actually there or not happens not too long after that when he actually turns completely into the worm apparently there was going to be a scene where his head explodes and all this ooze comes out while his uh, insectoid head is formed. Oh, and dude. that was, of course, too grotesque at the time for... Uh, yeah, that, that, would have, that would have been a lot compared to, you know, the amount of, of graphic nature the rest of the episode. That yeah, would have been and, and extreme. Especially when you imagine, like, the technology of the day. I mean, like, there's probably, like, so much green silly string and other stuff to be horrified by, you know, <laughs> yeah. in a sequence like that. <laughs> Well, I think they could have probably pulled it off to a degree because they've they've had similar things throughout the other. Yeah, but the um, the, the slime already. that they used wasn't even like slimy. It wasn't even liquidy. <laughs> yeah, totally, absolutely. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's kind of interesting that those scenes were were cut from the final edit, and it's unfortunate because it did kind of make it a little more choppy than usual. Well, I, I, I think that Colin's probably right on this one, that the head exploding also probably didn't look very good, so. Well, that possibly could be true, yes. Yeah, or maybe but you I mean, need, like, a huge budget to pull it off. True. Uh, they had shoestring and, and sealing wax, and they still were able to get something accomplished, so. But that's, I mean, everybody's that's ever watched the classic Doctor Who series will definitely tell you that's one of it, the drawbacks. Now, sometimes they are able to kind of go beyond uh, their limitations with what they're doing and make it more realistic. But in this case, eh, oh well. What did you think of all the other humans that were on board this arc? They so were mostly superfluous. Yeah, pretty forgettable. Like as individuals, they they were they were there. Yeah, one of them certainly saved the day and helped with something, some sort of a sacrifice. That yeah, one one of them you know had to, like there was like a dead man's switch. He had to go and, and hold it down, so he blew up. Yeah, I feel like I didn't get enough development time um, or character uniqueness to really get buy in um, to them and uh, and their fates to to really felt like it mattered, but. In a grand sense, I, I do have to really feel for them, you know, giving up their lives on Earth or feasibly whatever time they had left um, to go 10,000 years completely dormant. And then to, you know, uh, some of them, you know, at least one of them just lived to die. I, I, one, of the, one of the issues I had with the supporting cast members isn't that they were bad actors per se. No, they, all no. look, they all look pretty much the same. They all had curly hair. They all had almost dark hair. And it was, it, like you said, it was kind of hard to distinguish them. I mean, well, listen to this guy. He says everyone with dark curly hair looks the same. What are you saying about me, Michael? 
<laughs> no, I, I do know what you mean. They were all very generic-looking people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there were also, like, some references to, like, you know, making sure that everybody's, uh, I don't know, genetics are in line or, like, we have the right picks and selections. It did have some airs of kind of, like, eugenics or, like, well, making yeah. the perfect selections. But then the, the, the doctor also mentioned that they, they covered all of the races and creeds and whatnot. Yeah, which I thought was interesting just by looking at the shells that he could really yeah. tell that. Um, I mean, as if, well. if you took this script and put it into a 13th Doctor Arrow, you'd have like one of every race be represented in this story. Whereas here, it's all the same white guy, brown hair. Um, the only thing was that they decided to do it the la- again at the last minute uh, in casting was originally... Vira was supposed to be a black woman, which would have been great because she would have been the lead. Wow. Um, but yeah, the director, for some reason, decided not to do it. I don't know why. There was no explanation. Maybe but, the actress wasn't good enough. But, but I mean, it, I mean that would have been kind of cool. But also, I mean, just some diversity is nice. So that you can distinguish them. Even if you just give someone a mustache or you... Yeah. Right. Or, or make someone like platinum blonde. Right, it makes me think if, if, all, if really all colors and creeds are represented, they might just be represented like, oh, well, we'll put this color in janitorial services. <laughs> this color is all the men and technical staff. Because <laughs> that's what it seems to be. <laughs> yeah. Rogan is the only one that stood out, and that's only because he was there for pretty much the whole time up until he actually saves the day. Rogan's the one that uh, punches the doctor in the end. Um to make sure the doctor survives. <laughs> and then, of course, launches the spaceship. You, you, know, you know one of the other um, side characters that really stood out to me? Is there was an extra who was one of the cryogenic people who, like, for some reason was blinking furiously during a scene where there was like, it was like a close-up on Harry and the doctor and she was like in the background frame there and she just like, her eyes just kept opening and closing and I was like, what is going on? And nothing ever came of it. <laughs> Lots of bright lights on set make me blink too. Well, but her eyes could have just been closed like everyone else's. Maybe something got into her eye. I don't know. And miss the chance to see yourself on screen? (laughs) True. The other possibility is that she was being revived, but they never finished her... Her story never came to fruition. Hmm. I mean, Vira was uh, awake. No, this was before Vira woke up. Oh, before she woke up? Well... True. We don't know how long it took for Vira to wake up, though, did we? Did we actually see her open her eyes for the first time? Yeah. Yeah, it, it didn't they, take they, like, very long. Her. Yeah, they help her out of the thing. Okay. I should know, because I just watched this thing. I mean, she was able to grab the device and, you know, resuscitate herself. Uh, or less. It's like, yes, give me that toolkit. <laughs> Definitely. Oh, um, I think... Um, I think that uh, the one of the greatest Doctor Who speeches actually comes out of this too, where Tom Baker is uh, in amongst all the cryogenically frozen humans, and he's like, the entire human race, right here, Homo sapiens, what an inventive, invincible species. And he goes on to continue up until he calls them indomitable. And um, that goes down in the history books as one of the all-time Tom Baker greats. 
And then he's a part of a story where the only reason that humanity has any future is his presence. <laughs> and kind of a common theme that we see again and again through Doctor Who. <laughs> but good speech nonetheless. Well, you know, we also, you know, learn that we're, you know, his irrationally favorite species. So, you know, helps us out. <laughs> it absolutely helps us out. That's part of why we are indomitable. Yeah. <laughs> because he likes us. And he oh, likes us because we're indomitable. Other... Oh, no, paradox. <laughs> no, it's not a paradox. It's just a little wibbly-wobbly. You can't see it unless, uh, <laughs> unless you're like me. The, uh, the, the script for this almost um, being wibbly-wobbly, but I think the script to this story kind of reflected similarly to Alien, the movie. It had kind of that motif where there was an alien invading your body and taking over your body and then crashing out of it, so to speak. Oh, yeah, for sure. And just like the the, the larval stage and things like, you know, just to hear about like that reproduction strategy of, you know, putting your uh, alive young into, uh, you know, somewhat alive person. Yeah, I think that's that's this story actually scared a lot of people and if you read the book I think the book actually kind of allows you to paint that picture in your mind a lot better than the than on screen also um, I, I gotta say though the, the Weimaran story was pretty horrifying too I mean they said that the humans drove them out of Andromeda that's a galaxy we drove them out of an entire galaxy by just waging brutal war against them I mean that's pretty rough you can see why they're so bitter well, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, just for know. a little bit of humanity left in uh, in Noah or Le- or Lazar, yeah. I guess is what his real name is. I feel like we see a lot more sympathy from the Doctor and other Doctor stories, um, you know, towards the other and the alien in a situation like this that I, I don't see, think we saw much real empathy. Would yeah. you say that's you know consistent among this Doctor, or you know? Maybe more outlier. Maybe a little bit, but like no, this I'd say that's more of an outlier, wouldn't you, Michael? Um, Tom Baker's doctor actually kind of had a superior attitude about himself towards almost everybody, which kind of came probably from Tom Baker himself. But uh, that's just <laughs> his personality. But um, yes, I think this doctor definitely has a superiority complex, and a lot of times he's more concerned about making sure that. N- that the humans or the people around him aren't eradicated, and it's the creatures that are basically the the evil ones in his mind's eye. Now, that's not the case all the time, and there are some stories where the Doctor will actually try and fix things by giving them a chance, but, it, I mean, Tom, I, I, I do admit Tom has kind of a violent streak in him, I guess you might say, <laughs> from time to time, not all the time. But it, it's quite evident that he does take take things out on those who he finds to be on the wrong side. And maybe some of that Weimer never um, never left. It just got caught in his head and just was spinning the rest of the regeneration. Boom, boom, kill, boom. Kill, kill, kill. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, hey. One, one little factoid that I'll throw in here real quick that has nothing to do with what we are just saying. Factoid! This is the only story that features the brown version of the Tom Baker introduction. 
it's a one of a it's the one of a kind intro. It's the very first episode mm. instead of a blue intro, which is what he's known for. They had changed the whole color scheme to all brown. I guess they were experimenting. They left the experiment on the on the program. So <laughs> they did that during the John Pertwee era too. They experimented with his opening by using alternative music. Uh, I believe it was from Carnival of the Monsters. They used a whole different theme song. And it still exists on episode three, I believe, of Carnival of the Monsters. Why? Who knows? It didn't, it didn't stick around, though, obviously. <laughs> but at any rate, so... Uh, also, the scene where uh, Sarah finally takes charge and says, let me do something for a change. I'll go ahead and take this, uh, this conduit all the way down the ventilation shaft. This is a classic Doctor Who moment where classic. a typical companion is found in a ventilation shaft, going down, getting stuck, and getting in trouble by the Doctor. Yeah. The Doctor was pretty brutal in his uh, motivation to her, too. <laughs> But effective, because but effective. you knew exactly which buttons to push for Sarah. Yes. That's another good lesson of this story. You know, don't just, like, walk into a new place and start pressing buttons. You don't know what, you don't know what they do. Yeah, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Maybe we should rate this sucker. All right. I feel like you're looking at me. Um, and I feel like I will be the ratee. All right, so this this was an interesting episode. You know, I, I have to admit and be transparent about my bias against classic Who. However, you know, I felt this had a good pace. I liked the story. At, at the same time, I think there were things that could be cut out, but um, I liked a lot of the philosophical just, you know, thought processes that go in it. You know, what, what happens when you have a whole race that you need to account for, a whole world that you need to account for um, off of your, you know, uh, home planet? And how do you uh, survive through that? And I love the philosophical um, bends that we have in, in looking into the future and the trends where we have more and more compartmentalization, you know, in terms of how humans act and how they function. Um, and there was just some good amusement, you know, in, in this story as well. Uh, for me, this was a good episode. Um, I thought it, it did wrap up nicely in the end, uh, and I, I like to, to see the progression that we did, you know, from human into other creature. Um, and again, this was an interesting creature with some interesting concepts behind it. Um, well, a lot of it, you know, I, I think just from a, a plot-wide, top-down perspective is, you know, in some ways a, a little one-dimensional. Um, uh, in some ways a little predictable. I think it made me think on other levels. And that's what I appreciated about this. This episode for me is going to get a 7 out of 10. All right. I will now be the reader. Um, I, I felt you like this... You. <laughs> I, I mean, I thought that this was, was a good episode. And to Colin's point on the, the other perspectives, I do kind of wish that they'd explored th those some more. Because I think that that might have been, you know, an interesting direction to go to... Uh, you know, we've replaced some of the time in it, and it still could have been a four-episode story, but, you know, gone more into detail about, you know, what the human society was like and stuff, because that was kind of interesting and different. Um, I thought that, you know, it, it was all, in all, a fairly good episode. There weren't really any 
plot holes per se, but it was a little boring, a little bit drawn out. Um, I'm going to give this one a 6.5. Okay. Well, starting with Philip Hinchcliffe's introduction to Doctor Who, he took Doctor in a very different direction um, uh, during his tenure. And probably for the best, because we had gone through years and years with John Pertwee being on Earth and a lot of Earthbound stories. Finally, we're getting off Earth. Now, unfortunately, we are orbiting Earth at this point, but at least we're not on Earth. Um, I really love the set designs and, and the whole concept of this uh, uh, space station Nerva Beacon, um, which actually is featured in future stories. Um, as we know, the doctor goes at the end of this down to Earth using the transmat, so he, he doesn't grab the TARDIS and go anywhere. So we obviously have a cliffhanger of sorts at the end of this story. Um, but with this particular uh, story, we do have kind of a classic Monster of the Week um, alien invasion story. It definitely had its fair share of horror and its fair share of humor. Uh, which makes the story quite enjoyable. Um, I think it's a solid story, but it definitely does suffer from some of the uh, pitfalls of having a very small budget. Um, I watched the version... There's two versions that you can watch on your DVDs and Blu-rays, which uh, the second version actually has updated special effects, where the space stations on the outside and all the explosions out in outer space are replaced by CGI graphics which does enhance the story quite a bit because when you're looking on the inside of the space station, it actually looks pretty decent where they're walking around this kind of set that's almost circular with all the stars out in space and whatnot on the sides. Um, rather spacious, too, for such a uh, small little set that BBC Studios had at the time. Um, but I think uh, this story definitely uh, holds its own. It's It was well-received at the time. It had some of the highest ratings that Doctor Who ever had um, at 13 million viewers over in England, wow. uh, which was almost unheard of at that time. Um, so this story did quite well uh, ratings-wise. And I'm going to give this also a 7 out of 10. It's, it's solid enough to keep it going, but I think it's... Misses the mark slightly from being the ultimate greatest story. All right. Well, well tell us what you guys point. think. You can find us out there on the Facebook. You can email us at thehoovianreview at gmail.com. Do you not know our email address? I, I do. I just wanted others to be included as well, you know. <laughs> I'd like to jump in and give my part. I felt like I was stealing something from you. <laughs> Hey, and I want to give a shout-out to Shelby and Colin. They're feeling better. They, of course, had COVID. Yeah, sorry so we missed those episodes. We, we had the plague. But you're alive and you're well and you're, you're yes. recovering still. No, so no permanent I'm damage. Glad that, I'm, glad of that. I'm glad that we can talk again and rate our Doctor Who stories again. Yes. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Well... Next week, maybe we'll go on to the next Tom Baker story. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> we'll catch you next time on The Whovian Review. Adios, everybody. Bye. Bye.